Oh, good morning. Welcome to JVL Prez. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. Uh, thank you for joining us on this special day of Palm Sunday. Uh, we're going to be looking at hope for late bloomers. Uh, so with that in mind, I hope that everybody has a copy of God's Word out in front of them. We're going to be looking at not just one, but multiple passages this morning. So open up with me to Mark chapter 15, but uh, be sure to grab a blue Bible. We're on page 1014, I believe, to begin. But we're going to be looking uh, actually at uh, multiple passages this morning. Also, before we jump into the sermon, I do want to make you aware that there are some new things in the sanctuary. Uh, if anybody notices, there is a new lectern right there or a podium or something like that. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what the r- real word is, uh, but if you notice, it perfectly matches my pulpit right here, and we even have a new hand-built communion table. This was done by some men in our church, uh, Phil Kessler and Bill Boning. Uh, I told them I wouldn't have them stand up while we thanked them, but I got you anyway. <laughs> Uh, but this is significant in the life of our church because, uh, uh, you know, the, the wood is going to darken over time, so it perfectly matches. But uh, if you don't know this already, the dark wood and the, on the crosses that are also on the legs that are also on this one actually comes from the same tree that fell down in Jacksonville years ago that uh, men in the church turned into the cross behind me. And uh, it's very, very exciting, uh, very thankful for it. And the same kind gentleman that wrote those words, do this in remembrance of me, uh, on the communion tables, the same guy who wrote these words that I look at every Sunday before I preach, uh, which is a great reminder for anybody opening up God's word. Uh, it says, John 12, 21, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, what a great reminder. And I hope you see Jesus this morning. Uh, with that in mind, friends, let's hear from the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at hope for late bloomers through the story of Joseph of Arimathea. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated as you keep that Bible open? Let's pray together as God's beloved people. Uh, Father, I thank you that there is always hope uh, for people like Joseph of Arimathea and hope for everyone in this room. Father, we praise you that you are the God of all grace. May we see your son Jesus all the more clear as we read your words inspired by the Spirit to the glory of God our Father. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, Makato Fujimura is an abstract painter. Uh, He is a Japanese-American painter living in New York City, and uh, I thought it would be fitting this morning to introduce you to some abstract paintings. So anyone here a fan of uh, Nehanga, Japanese-style abstract paintings? Well, if you aren't, uh, I would suggest to you maybe by the end of the morning, you'll really be uh, emotionally affected by Makato Fujimura's paintings. Uh, I'm going to show you uh, a few of his paintings, and it is abstract. So you need to kind of think more creatively to understand what you're looking at, okay? So just some of you look very skeptical. (laughs) I can see it. Just go there with me, okay? Uh, The first painting. 
Mm. Looks like a Rothko to me. No. Second painting. Third painting. Mm. And the next one. About five years ago, Makato Fujimura was commissioned by Crossway Publishers, which produces the English Standard Version, of which most of you have in your hands right now. And this Christian publishing arm, Crossway, commissioned Makato Fujimura, who is a Christian, who's a member of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, actually, where he's a leader. Uh, Makato Fujimura, you can see his other paintings in places like the Chelsea Gallery. Uh, he made a name for himself not as a Christian painter, but as a world-class abstract painter. But he was asked by Crossway Publishers at the 500th anniversary of the King James translation of the Bible to depict the four holy gospels through the medium of abstract painting. So let's go back to that first painting. Makato Fujimura was inspired by not only T.S. Eliot and Dante, but by the gospel of Mark and the command to be baptized, the command to submit oneself to the call of Jesus. He thought of the judgment fire that John the Baptist talks about, the severity that sometimes uh, John the Baptist can hear from. And so he was inspired by T.S. Eliot's uh, poem, uh, Little Giddings. And that's the Gospel of Mark, according to Makato Fujimura. The next painting right here, if anybody wants to guess, is which gospel? It's the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, he titled this painting, Consider the Lilies. In the Gospel of Matthew, of course, Jesus says, Consider the Lilies. And Makato Fujimura, in his commentary on his own painting, said, Instead of being anxious about life, what you will eat or what you will drink, I consider this passage to be a crucial step that needs to be taken before we're able to seek the kingdom of God. So before we can seek the kingdom of God, Makato Fujimura would remind you to consider the lilies. And if you look closely, you may be able to see the abstract form of some kind of flower. Can you see it? The next painting here, he it was inspired by his pastor's sermon, Prodigal God, uh, which is a uh, wonderful sermon about uh, uh, the story of the prodigal son. It's a great reminder that actually the one who's most prodigal, the most extravagant, is the father who forgives his wayward son. And uh, this is the Gospel of Luke, where the story of the prodigal God uh, is recorded. And the reason it's so complex is not only because Luke is a complex gospel, but he writes as an artist and a leader in the church and as a husband and father, I myself struggle between legalism and waywardness and between determinism and grace. Uh, the last and final painting, of course, is uh, most people's favorite gospel, the gospel of John, uh, certainly the gospel that converted me to Christ. And in here, he was reminded of the opening words of the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so if you can see, there is a, a subtle nod to the great trinity of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory that existed when it was and is and is to come. And he, he painted it black with the red um, live in front of an audience, uh, and he was reminded of the depths of the creation story in John. So the reason I, I share these paintings with you is because um, there is such beauty and complexity to the four Gospels that it can inspire beautiful paintings like this, but it can also inspire ordinary people like you and me 
And I want to suggest to you that nobody in this room appreciates enough the beauty and the complexity and the unity of the four holy gospels. And the reason I suggest that to you is because I want you and I to study this morning, not just one depiction of Joseph of Arimathea, but all four gospels take on Joseph of Arimathea. And I would even suggest to you that all four gospels are necessary and all four gospels share something unique about Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, I'm indebted to Pastor Larry Osborne for pointing this out to me, but uh, let's take that thesis of Joseph of Arimathea unique to the four Gospels, and let's put it to the test. Look with me at Mark chapter 15. Now, I want you to focus on when you read Mark 15, how does Mark uniquely describe Joseph of Arimathea? Look with me again at Mark 15. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a what? A respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning, if nothing else, is that the story of Joseph of Arimathea, as small and as minor a character in the Gospels as he is, plays an incredibly crucial role during Passion Week. And he should give every one of us hope that even if we're not quite figuring out this faith thing, even if we've struggled to understand what it means to follow Jesus, there is always hope for late bloomers. Because Joseph of Arimathea, if nothing else, is a late bloomer. Now, what do I mean by late bloomer? Well, I learned this from a very profoundly beautiful theological work. It's really a tome. It's very heavy. It's called Leo, the Late Bloomer. You may have heard of it. It's a child's book about children who develop later in life. And in this story, it's a beautiful story of blooming late. It says, Leo couldn't do anything right. He couldn't read or write. He couldn't draw, and he was a sloppy eater. <laughs> every day and every night, Leo's father watched for signs of blooming. Are you sure Leo's a bloomer? Asked Leo's father. Patience, said Leo's mother. Then one day, in his own good time, Leo bloomed. When you study the story of Jesus, what you'll immediately recognize is immediately a huge crowd of people who have positive affection for Jesus, who think highly of him, surround him and want to be associated with Jesus. And all of these people who want some of the reflective glory of Jesus to fall on them, they all fall away on the night when Jesus was betrayed by one of the inner twelve. Even Peter, the spokesperson of all the disciples, denies him and calls down curses from God, saying he doesn't know this man and he has never had any business with him. So in the moment when people most needed to stand up and identify with Jesus, they all abandoned him. And yet, amazingly, on the day that Jesus dies, Joseph of Arimathea, 
a respected member of the council steps up and publicly says in front of Pilate, um, you know that criminal that Rome just put to death for being an enemy of the state? I'm actually very close to him, and I want to take his body down and give him my tomb. So if you were to look at the trajectory, the people around Jesus, they, they, there's this upward trajectory, and then on the night when he was betrayed, they plummet, and they're nowhere to be found. And yet, Joseph of Arimathea isn't even in the story until exactly that moment, and all of a sudden, he took courage and said, I want to be identified with Jesus. That enemy of the state that you just put to death, yeah, he and I are very, very close. Uh, Ken Costa uh, is a uh, South African man living in London. He's one of the most influential investment bankers. Uh, he's never been a pastor, although he is a Christian. He's the chairman of the Alpha Outreach Ministry. Uh, Ken Costa, this very, very rich man living in the world of important people, was inspired by the story of Joseph of Arimathea. And he wrote these words in his book, Joseph of Arimathea. Where were the disciples now? In the wake of Jesus' death, where were Jesus' friends who had observed his every move, who had listened to his every word? They had entered the Holy Week with Jesus, watching him laugh as children sang, watching him weep as Jerusalem ignored him, watching his silence as priests accused him, watching in despair as Pilate turned on him. Despite everything that they saw and everything that they'd witnessed, now they were nowhere to be seen. So in the moment, nobody wanted to be associated with Jesus. For some reason, this important man, this member of the council, this respected man wants to be identified with him. And of course, that's an intriguing statement because what does it mean that he's a member of the council? What's the council? Another term for that is the Sanhedrin. They were the 71 religious leaders of Israel. And if you know anything about the story of Jesus, it's the Sanhedrin who condemns Jesus and leads him ultimately to his death. They are the jury that finds him guilty of blasphemy. And here is Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member within the 71, who wants to be associated with Jesus. And then if you didn't catch it already, Joseph is the one, not Mary, not Jesus' mother, Joseph is the one to actually have to remove the nails from his hands and feet. Joseph was the one who knew what Jesus' dried blood felt like. He was the one who took the corpse and wrapped it in linen. You know, the Old Testament, writing in the prophet Isaiah, this is about 700 years before Jesus was ever alive. In the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah says that one day Messiah would come, and when he comes, he would be high and lifted up. But many would be astonished, and his appearance would be so marred beyond the semblance of humanity that people would turn their face from him. And yet, so shall he sprinkle many nations clean. Uh, friends, when the Messiah was lifted up on high, and his figure was so marred beyond human semblance that people turned their face from him, but he sprinkled the peoples clean. Friends, no one had a better view of that than Joseph of Arimathea. But what is he planning on doing with the body? 
And also, maybe we should even ask, how is he even able to get an audience with Pilate? You think Pilate's having a good day right now? You think Pilate wants to talk to anybody late on the afternoon of Friday after having condemned Jesus? We know from the Gospel of John, he already feels guilty. We already know that his wife already said, don't have anything to do with that man. And yet somehow, when Joseph of Arimathea comes knocking, he opens the door. How is that possible? Well, this is why we need not just one beautiful painting, but four. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. Flip over to Matthew chapter 27. It's page 992 in your Bible if you need it. Matthew chapter 27. And again, listen like you've never heard this story before. What do you learn from the Gospel of Matthew? This is no longer the red painting. This is the Consider the Lilies painting. Matthew writes uniquely, When it was evening, this is verse 57, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it where? In his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. You know, recently I got stuck on YouTube and watched a two and a half hour debate between a theologian and a famous uh, professor of religion at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And they were debating whether or not the Gospels were reliable. And I listened to all the guy's arguments. I've read his textbook before. Uh, But my takeaway was praise God for the Gospels and their beauty in the way that they testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting about Matthew? Matthew never tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Did you catch that? He skips that part. It may be because Matthew has already told us that all the Sanhedrin voted to condemn Jesus, just like Mark does. Matthew, on the other hand, answers the question, when he comes knocking, why does Pilate open the door? What does Matthew want you to know about Joseph of Arimathea? He's a rich man. He's got money. Uh, As Ken Costa, you know that rich guy I was talking about? Uh, In his commentary, what he recognizes is he recognizes in the wealthy the ability to steward their influence. That he knows how to bide his time. And he knows when to hold them and when to fold them. Matthew says he's a rich man. That explains then why Matthew also reminds you that this isn't just some tomb. Whose tomb is it? It's his tomb. It's his own new tomb. No one else had ever been put into it. It's his own tomb. Reminding us again that Joseph of Arimathea has a whole lot to lose. Wouldn't you say? If he's associated with a criminal of the state, we already know from Mark that he, because he's going to lose his spot on the Sanhedrin, don't you think? I mean, he's a respected member, and now he's publicly identifying with the person they just decided to kill as an enemy to the state of Israel. Not only is he going to lose his place potentially among the Sanhedrin and among his friends, now he's also going to lose what? Potentially his fortune. Oh, Pilate, you know that guy you just killed that's an enemy of the state? Yeah, actually, he and I are so close that I'm willing to take his body down, and I'll even give him my own personal tomb. 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, it doesn't matter that he's, you know, rich per se. I mean, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Being rich does not make someone uh, better, nor does it necessarily make them worse. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus says these words, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? But what does Jesus say? With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Joseph of Arimathea is the fulfillment of that verse, wouldn't you say? He's a disciple of Jesus, after all. Mark didn't mention that, did he? But Matthew does. But why is it that we should know that he's a rich man? Well, it's not just because that explains how Pilate responds to him. Uh, It also explains actually why this is so important in the Bible. If you were to go back to Isaiah, that prophet that wrote 700 years before Christ, in Isaiah 53, you can turn there if you'd like, it's page 729 in your Bible. We get some of the most famous predictions of Jesus Christ. This is Isaiah 53. Some of you know these words by heart. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But Isaiah goes on in describing this suffering servant, this Messiah, who would have the sins of the world laid on him. He says these words in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That'd be a wonderful exercise to reread Isaiah 53 this week of Holy Week. But I want you to recognize is that what Isaiah says is at the death of this man, he will be associated with the wicked and with the rich man, even in his death and in his grave. And what we have here is a reminder that if Joseph of Arimathea had not taken courage and gotten Jesus' body down, Jesus' corpse would have ended up just like every other corpse of any other criminal of the state of Rome, which means that it would have been left to the vultures and to the dogs. If anything, the Jewish people would have been morally obligated to bury it, but they would have thrown it into a common grave where it would soon decay and rot. And yet we see that Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus down, removes the nails himself, and he does so in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Isaiah foretold this day, just as Isaiah said the Messiah would take the punishment of our sins, Isaiah says he'll be associated with the wicked and the rich in his grave and in his death. But friends, is that all there is to the story? Well, praise God, we have two other paintings. Look with me at the Gospel of Luke now. Go to Luke 23. What does Luke uniquely add? Why do we have four Gospels and not just one? Luke 23, what does Luke write? Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, and listen to what he uniquely adds. From the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Friends, did you see what Luke just did there? First, 
Uh, just, so you, just so you know, if you were to read the Gospel of Luke, Luke is adamant that the Gospel is for men and women. We're confronted with woman after woman in the Gospel of Luke, like Anna the prophetess, and Elizabeth, and Mother Mary, and we get Mary Magdalene, and we get uh, the woman with the disabling spirit, and we get the woman who has a 12-year discharge of blood, and we have the widow and her two mites. Over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is reminding us that the Gospel is for men and women. And also Luke is reminding us here that the gospel is not just for the nations, not just for the Gentiles, but for Jewish people like Joseph of Arimathea because Jesus is for everyone, even rich, influential Jewish men with all of the power, even members of the Sanhedrin because Jesus is for everyone. But then notice that Luke also reminds us that he's a member of the council And Luke uses an amazing phrase. The Bible only describes a handful of humans as good and righteous. You know, if you, anyone ever read the Bible and been like, man, everybody's terrible. You know, you read the Bible and everybody's messing up and they're such knuckleheads. Well, it's because they're just like you and me. So when the Bible actually verbally says, this is a good, righteous person, our ears should prick up because that doesn't happen that often. And Luke wants you to know that this is a good and righteous man. And then Luke says what? And he didn't consent to their decision. But friends, do you feel the tension in that statement? Because Matthew and Mark tell us that they all agreed Jesus should die. Uh, No gospel writer ever depicts Joseph of Arimathea taking a stand during the trial of Jesus and saying, guys, this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. We have no record of that. So if if Joseph of Arimathea is a good and righteous person, if he's a disciple of Jesus, if he's rich and influential, and he's well-respected, and he's on the Sanhedrin, and he didn't agree with their decision, then where was he during the trial of Jesus? We're only left with a couple of options. One is that he missed it. He didn't go, but that seems implausible because what week is it? It's Passover week. All Jewish men are in Jerusalem, especially the Sanhedrin, and especially like a good and righteous man like Joseph and everything. He wouldn't be missing the week in Jerusalem. Where was he during the trial? Why do you think Matthew doesn't want you to know or doesn't mention, excuse me, that he was on the Sanhedrin. Mark, Luke, tell us the Sanhedrin all voted that way. Well, this is why we need the beautiful complexity of the four Gospels. What does John uniquely add to the story? In a unique tapestry of the story of Jesus, the true story, the Gospel writer of John paints his own painting using new colors we haven't seen before. Look at verse 38. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, this is John 19, verse 38, page 1077. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but what? Secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus 
and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You see, John answers the question, doesn't he? Yes, he was a disciple. Yes, this is a good and righteous person. Yes, he is respected. Yes, he knows God's word. And yes, he kept it a secret. He kept his head down. He feared man and did not want to be cast out of the synagogue. And yet, friends, at the moment when all of the disciples, even Peter himself, abandoned Jesus at the cross, (laughs) Joseph of Arimathea, this secret believer who didn't want anybody to know he actually believes this stuff about Jesus, steps up and says, I'll take his body. And then what I love so much about John is John brings back a character we haven't ever seen in any of the other gospels, a guy named Nicodemus, where he comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus is exploring who Jesus is, and he's a teacher of the law, and was almost certainly a member of the Sanhedrin. And here, Joseph finally steps up and says, I want to be associated with Jesus. And he turns to his friend, Nicodemus, and he says, let's do it. Let's go together. Nicodemus had just as much to lose as Joseph did. You know, what's amazing to me about that is I have no doubt that there are people who are listening to me right now, uh, some of whom are awake, (laughs) who have some understanding in their heart of who Jesus really is. But maybe because of something in their past or some lingering sin, they just haven't quite bloomed. They just haven't quite... um, nailed their colors to the mast. And friends, what's so beautiful about Joseph of Arimathea is that it is never too late for somebody to identify and claim membership in the family of Jesus Christ. Even when no one else is claiming Jesus, for some reason, Joseph says, now I am with him. And the amazing thing is he brings his friend with him. You know, in my experience, when there are people who are exploring Christianity, there's always somebody else there. Some friend, some childhood friend, or some spouse. It's like, is this even true? I mean, this is crazy, right? And for Joseph, that was Nicodemus. But what changes in their hearts? When does the light bulb turn on? When does it click? When do they see the painting for what it is? Friends, they finally see it at the cross. At the cross, Christ crucified for them. And if Joseph hadn't done that, we would never have the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Uh, Friends, as you uh, enter into Holy Week this week, let me just uh, invite you on behalf of Jesus to immerse yourself in the story of Jesus. And if you haven't already, friends, take heart. As Mark would tell you, take courage and identify with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have, uh, that despite our past, it is never too late for any of us. Uh, Father, for those who love you, we praise you for the beauty of the four Gospels. Lord, we thank you for Matthew and for Mark and for Luke and for John, that they all are beautiful masterpieces that show us the face of the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Father, this week, may we, in fact, declare that he is worthy of all of our praise, glory, honor, and adoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.